Well, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. This is a very appropriate passage for this morning. God's Word is always appropriate, of course, but this has been a hard and a sad week for our community and for many of you who are part of our church family. We think about the very tragic loss of life this past week as four people passed away, a father and three teenagers in our community. And so, of course, we want to just encourage us to continue to be in, in prayer for the families affected by this. And I know many of you uh, had relationship with, with some of the, the members of the family, especially the young girl who attended our uh, youth group at times. And so we want to just be really, uh, as we, we mourn for the family we want to be, and families, we want to be praying for them and praying for each of us who are uh, affected by that. We want to pray that God would comfort, and we want to pray that God in his grace would, would use even this tragedy to help us to, to think about him. Remember, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells young people, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And so our our prayer would be that God would use even this tragedy in the lives of our young people to cause them to think more deeply about who he is and about the reality that even if if we live to be an old age, life is, is so, so very short. And God in his grace calls us to live that, that short period of life for his glory. And so we, we pray that God would, would be using this, this tragedy in the life of our lives of our young people, lives of our community to, to draw people to himself for his glory and, and their, their joy. This, this, this evening, uh, for those of you who would desire to be a part of it, there's a, a, remember, a time of remembrance at 6.30 to 8.30 at the high school field. And so you may be, want to be a part of that and encouraging the families and, and just mourning with those who mourn in our community. But again, this passage, I believe God and his, his kindness has brought us to this morning. Acts 13 talks a lot about the gospel and about the hope that we have and the power of the resurrection, of the resurrection of, of, of Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember here in Acts chapter 13, where are we in the story? We're on Paul's first missionary journey. He and Barnabas have left Antioch, and they've traveled to Antioch and Pisidia. And Paul, if you remember from last week, is giving this, this sermon in the synagogue. And the, the purpose of Luke at this portion in the book of Acts is to answer the questions, how did the Gentiles become a part of the blessing promised to Abraham, and what type of inclusion do they have? in this promise? Is it partial inclusion? Are they really part of the family of God? And what Paul is going to tell us in this sermon is this is, this is full inclusion. It's not Jews and then kind of Gentiles are second tier members of the promise given to Abraham, but there is full inclusion of the Gentiles into the promises of God. And that full inclusion, how does it take place? It takes place through the work of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. And last week, we looked a lot at the promise that was given in the Old Testament, and this week, we're going to look a lot more at the fulfillment. So, promise in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And we read the whole thing, the whole message of Paul last week. This morning, I'm going to look at verses 26 through 41. Remember, he's just talked about the promises made in the Old Testament, how God worked about to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. He's just talked about John the Baptist proclaiming that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now 
he gives a little bit more application as he talks about the fulfillment and what it all means. And so if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God, as we read his word together, we're going to begin in verse 26. Paul continues, speaking to the people in the synagogue there in Antioch, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers... That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You may be seated. May God encourage and strengthen us through his word this morning. And Father, we would ask this morning that you would go before us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would uh, cause us to to think rightly about you, you would cause us to experience the the joy of beholding you in, in your word. For those who are hurting this morning, for those who are, are mourning the, the loss of, of loved ones, of, of friends, of, of husbands, of uh, co-workers, of, of people we love, we, we pray that you would show yourself in a, a special way. We pray that you would use tragedy in our own lives and the lives of our community to cause us to, to seek you more, that the, the, your hand of, of affliction would be a, a kind hand as we trust that it is, helping us to see the, the temporary sometimes even illusory nature of, of life that we cling to and, and see the, the beauty and the permanence and the realness of you and you alone. Help us to worship you for your glory, for our joy. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. April 2nd of 1904, there was a musical that opened on Broadway called Piff, Paff, Poof. I don't know anything much about that musical. I don't know what it was about. It maybe it's just a bunch of musical numbers. But I do know about one musical number in this musical. It was a, a number called the Radium Dance. The Radium Dance. And it was a, 
a number devoted to the element radium. And there were some, some dancers that were dancing, and they had these, these like jump ropes that were illuminated with this radioactive material, radium, and they were dancing around and, and all this, and they were celebrating radium. Radium was kind of this, it was a newly discovered element. I think it had been discovered in the late 1800s, 1898. And, and so the, the dancers are kind of excited about this, this new element that's been discovered, and it's, it's glow-in-the-dark properties. In fact, if you, if you look at advertisements from the early 1900s, you find often these manufacturers talking about this, this magical, amazing substance, radium. You see them advertising their glow-in-the-dark products. You see some, some people touting the supposed health benefits of radium, that you could consume it or be around it or whatever, and it would help with digestion, it would help with asthma, I mean, all these different food supplements that were, that had radium in it and advertising how beneficial it was. In fact, there was even like a, a butter, radium brand creamery butter that hopefully did not really have radium in it, right? But um, they, they said that it did. And there's an article in The Atlantic, that magazine, that was, was talking about a group of young women known as the, the Radium Girls. And there was a documentary by the, the same name, The Radium Girls. And these were young women, uh, some just out of high school, who in the early 1910s began working at a watch manufacturer company. And their job was to paint the, the dials and the numbers of, of watches with radium. And what they were told to do by their supervisors was to, to dip the, the paintbrushes in this, this radium and then to you know, point their brushes with, with their lips. And so day after day, they were consuming these little tiny amounts of, of radium. In fact, even at night, sometimes they would paint their nails with radium, their teeth, and you know, it was kind of like this, uh, kind of a, a joke and kind of lively thing to do and whatever. And it wasn't until 1925 that the New York Times ran a story about this, this new disease, this radium disease, and how deadly radium was, and how doctors were discovering that radium was, was going to the bone marrow and, and eating away at the marrow and causing bone cancer and deterioration of bones and all these terrible things. Five young women had died by that point, and more were to follow. T- terrible disease, right? Now, you, you see where I'm, I'm going with this probably, right? There was, no, there was no recognition that radium was, was dangerous. In fact, people believed that it was beneficial, that they certainly didn't think that a small amount of radium would, would be harmful, but in, indeed it was. And again, you know where I'm going with this as we think about sin. We live in a culture that, that doesn't recognize the, the danger of sin. In fact, as we think about things that God has clearly said in his word, these are things you must not do, things that, we, we, that God calls sin, we live in a culture that says, no, these things are beneficial for you to do. These, these attitudes, these actions, these beliefs are, are good for you to have. And certainly we live in a culture that says, okay, even if, even if they are bad, and this, this exists even within the church, we would say, okay, in small amounts, they're not that bad, right? It's not that dangerous to have a little bit of pride, to tolerate a, a tiny amount of lust, to, to, to be a little bit driven by greed, surely tiny small amounts of, of sin can't be that bad for my soul. And, and yet what does God's word tell us? God's word tells us clearly that sin is deadly to our soul. Small amounts even of, of sin decay and destroy. 
us spiritually. And you say, well, okay, but, but what do I do with that information? I mean, sin is, is everywhere. It's all, it permeates our culture. And, and even if I were to lock myself in a, in a room, in a closet, and, and expose myself to no one, we're out there where the sin is, even if I was alone in that closet, the, the sin would, would still be there. I, I feel the, the power and the presence of sin just, just in my own self. What would what I do with that? What sort of escape is possible? And, and here's the main thing that I want us to think about together this morning as we look at Paul's words here. The same power, this is the main thing I want us to think about, the same power that raised up Jesus delivers us completely from all our sins. The same power that is at work in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the same power that works within us to to deliver us completely from all our sin, from the, the consequences of sin, from the power of sin. That same work is at work in us to bring about our deliverance. There's there's hope that we see here in these verses. We're going to look this morning at, at the bondage of our sins as, as Paul gives this, this message to these Jews and Gentiles. We're going to look at the bondage of our sins, and we're going to see how Paul describes the power of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the display of the fulfillment of his promise to the Old Testament prophets, and then, then we're going to look at the offer of complete, total forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. So let's, let's dive in here and let's begin talking about the bondage of our sin. Look at the text with me again, if you will, and remember what Paul has said. Remember as he begins his message, he begins with these words, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, that's in verse 16. And then in verses 17 and following, he talks about all the things that God did. Remember we noticed like eight or nine verbs that are used to describe God's active work in bringing about his promise. He chose. He's the one who did that. He chose a people. He raised up David. He brought the people out of of Egypt. He bore with them. It's all about God's work. Remember that? God does this, and God does this, and God does this. It's God who made a promise. It's God who who works in human history to fulfill that promise, and that promise is fulfilled by God, not by man. The promise is fulfilled by God in the person of Jesus Christ, completely fulfilled. So that's God's work. Now, Paul contrasts that with the work of human beings. Listen to what he says as we begin in verse 26. Again, he's, he's, he, he addresses the brothers of the Jews and the God-fears, and so I, I think it's a marker here that he's beginning a new phase of his message here. He says, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. And then he describes the work of the Jews in Jerusalem, the rulers. It says, verse 27, those who live in Jerusalem, the rulers, Listen to what they did. Three things that he draws their attention to. So God works about salvation, and here's what human beings do. Number one, the first thing they did is they condemned the Messiah. He says this in verse 27. Because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So the first thing that the people in Jerusalem, the rulers and the people there in Jerusalem did, Despite all of God's work in bringing about salvation, the first thing they noticed is they, that they did is they condemned the Messiah. The Messiah who had been promised, that God brought about, what did they do? They condemned him. He says, why did they do that? Well, they didn't understand 
the utterances of, of the prophets, even though they're, they're read every Sabbath. You remember the, the, story of, the stories of Jesus on the Sabbath and how oftentimes he, he ran afoul of the religious leaders of the day because of what he was doing on the Sabbath? This, this whole thing is dripping with irony, right? So here's, here's Jewish leaders going to synagogues, hearing God's word read, and then even after they hear God's word read, God's word that talks about the Messiah, as they see the Messiah in front of them, bringing about the salvation that the scripture messages that they've heard have proclaimed about, even as they see that, what do they do? They don't understand him. They're ignorant. And as a result of that, they condemn him. What else do we see about what they did? It says that they pressured, they asked Pilate to to kill the Messiah. Look at verse 28. It says, they, they found in him no guilt worthy of death, but they asked Pilate to have him executed. So despite the fact that they knew that he wasn't guilty, they asked Pilate to condemn a guilty man. Now, you might excuse the, the religious leaders for not understanding the scriptures. They say, well, they, they condemned him, but they didn't understand that he was the Messiah. Well, fine, says Paul. Look at this. Even though they knew that he had done nothing worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him killed. And then the third thing they did, they buried the body. They got rid of the evidence of their sin, they thought. It says in verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written of him, and again, there's irony there, right? Even as they don't recognize what the scriptures say, even as they don't recognize the fulfillment of God's promise, they are bringing about the things that God has said would happen. It says even... Then, after they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, it's hard to imagine a a more complete rejection of God's revelation than what we see the religious leaders, the people who live in Jerusalem and their leaders doing here, right? God, in his word, is okay, here's what I'm going to do. This is the promise that I'm making to you. This is how I'm going to bring about my salvation. And then the, the people to whom God has entrusted his promises, the Jews, they, they take these promises, they don't believe them, they don't recognize them, and whenever the promise, the fulfillment of the promise comes in their midst, they have him condemned, they make sure he's executed, they bury the body. Now what is Paul going to tell us, not just here, but, but throughout Scripture? What, what does God reveal to us? It's not just the people in Jerusalem who have a problem with sin, right? The bondage that human beings find themselves in to to sin is is a powerful one. It, It causes, this bondage causes these rulers to act in the way that they do. It causes you and I to reject God's promise of salvation as well. You think about Paul's other message in the, the book of Romans as he starts off in Romans chapter 1. Remember what he says? He says, as he begins this, this amazing epistle, he says in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for what is it? It's, it's the power of God for salvation, for deliverance to the bondage of sin, to everyone who believes, to the, 
Jew first and also the Greek. And then these first few chapters of Romans, he says, look, we are all under the bondage of sin. We're all under God's just condemnation. He begins in verse 18 and he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so God has revealed himself in nature. He's revealed himself in his special revelation of scripture. He's revealed himself, I I believe, internally to us where we know that there's a God. And yet in our unrighteousness, in our bondage to sin, what do we continue? continue to do. We continue to suppress the truth that God has given us. No, there's not a God. No, his word is not true. We continue to reject him because of our bondage to sin. It's true of the Pharisees. It's true of the rulers. It's true of the people in Jerusalem. It's true of you and me. Jesus would tell us that everyone who's a, who sins is a slave to sin. And that's what we see here in these, these first Verses. How, how does the power of sin show itself in, in our lives? Part of the answer depends on whether you're a believer or, or not a believer. Maybe this morning you're, you're not a believer. You've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, of sins. You, you've heard that the people this morning sharing their, their testimonies of how they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they say, no, that, that does not describe me. As the people described their, their life before Christ and, and the power that sin had over them, you say, okay, that, that might, if you're honest with yourself, you say, okay, that, that describes me. And maybe there's moments in your life where you have, have found yourself with the ability to, to make some changes. Maybe you've, you've had a bad habit and you, you've stopped it for a period of time. But again, if you're honest with yourself, you say, this, this struggle that I have with sin, it, it still exists. And, and even when I make these these nice changes and I, I, I break a bad habit or I, I stop doing something that I, I used to do and I'm, I don't want to do anymore, I, I still find that the power of, of sin at work in my life, I, I still find myself struggling with this, this reality that sin is, is in control of me in some very real ways. It's like Jesus. Jesus describes in Luke 11 the, the moralist, the person who just on their own tries to have good morals. He says when a, a, a demon has gone out of a person, an unclean spirit, it, It passes through the waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. In other words, there's been some some moralistic changes, but not a true heart change. And then it says, the spirit goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. That's the reality of the moralist. And maybe, again, this morning you say the the bondage of sin, the the power of sin is seen in my life and and the control that it has in me, and I I don't have a new heart. I haven't placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Or or maybe this morning you say, I I am a believer. I I have placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've I've heard the gospel. I've believed it, and God has given me a new heart. How how then do you describe and explain the fact that sin is still strong in me? And I I think the, the reality is, the reality is that the power of sin is, is seen in the danger of its continued growth. And I think the difference between the unbeliever and the believer is that for those of us who are in Christ, we say, okay, I, I recognize the danger of sin. And because my heart has been transformed by God's grace, I, I don't desire to continue in this sin that I'm, I'm tempted by, that I, I feel the draw of. I recognize its danger, and by God's grace, it, it doesn't have control over me. I, I can, by God's grace, flee it, and I desire to do so because I recognize 
the danger it presents to my soul. That's only a conclusion that a believer can come to, that deep desire to flee from sin. Sin is strong. We're in bondage to it. Here's the second thing I want us to look at. Let's look at the power of God in the resurrection. Paul goes on in verse 30. Despite what human beings did, so God made a promise. He worked in human history to, to bring it about. The people to whom the promise came rejected it, rejected him. But what did God do? God continued to work his salvation. God raised him from the dead. And he says in verse 31, For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And as we go through the book of Acts, don't, don't forget Sometimes it's easy to, to forget the big story of the book of Acts. Remember, the big story of the book of Acts, one of the huge themes is the idea of witness. The idea of witness. There's, there's testimony that's taking place. They're testifying to the reality of the gospel message. And he says, we are now his witnesses. We are, we are those who testify to the power of the truth of the gospel. Verse 32, here's what we're testifying. We bring you good news. We're delivering to you here in Antioch this, this good news, this gospel, that the things that God promised to the fathers, the things that God said in the Old Testament, now he has fulfilled to us their children. And he says that the, the, the manifestation of this fulfillment is the, the resurrection of Jesus. He's emphasized the importance of the resurrection. It says he's fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a display of the power of God, and it tells us that what God has promised in the Old Testament, he's fulfilling now in Christ. There's, there's two things I want you to notice here. First of all, then, the, the fact of the resurrection. He's saying this, this, this actually happened. We're his witnesses to that. We, we can testify to the reality that he's been raised from the dead. And then I want you also look at this. Look at verses 32 through 37. And here we see the significance of the resurrection. The significance of the resurrection. He's going to quote two Psalms and the book of Isaiah to, to show us how significant the resurrection is. The first thing that he wants us to see about the significance of the resurrection, how it displays God's power, is showing you that, this is, that the resurrection is demonstrating that Jesus reigns as king. Listen to what he says. He says, again, this is the end of verse 33. He says, he, he did this by raising Jesus, and that word that he uses for raising Jesus is the same word he used last week when he talked about raising up David. He says he raised Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, and this is Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, now what is Psalm 2 talking about? Psalm 2 is talking about the reign of a king. Listen to what Psalm 2 says. Psalm 2, verse 7, is, is what Paul is quoting here. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he goes on and he talks about this, this, the reign of this king. He says in Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. So it's, it's all the peoples, not just the Jews, but all the peoples become the heritage of this king. The ends of the earth, your possession. There's no corner of the, of the world, there's no corner of the universe where this king does not reign over. And he goes on, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, here's how people should respond. O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. So what's the significance of the resurrection? 
In the resurrection, Jesus, Jesus is being declared to be the king. He's the, the king that God has appointed, that David is a picture of. And so as, as Paul is preaching to these people in Antioch, he says, look, this is what you need to know, that the resurrection occurred, it's the fulfillment of God's promise, and now Jesus reigns as kings. This is the message to the peoples. Look, this is the king to whom you need to submit. And not only, not only is Jesus God the Father's Messiah, the king, you need to recognize him as king, and also you need to recognize that he's not just a king, he's an eternal king. Look what eternal king, look at what he goes on to say here in his, his message. He says, therefore, this is, this is verse, I'm sorry, uh, verse 34 he says, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing, blessings of David. He's quoting there Isaiah 55. He says, okay, this, this messianic king is receiving the promises made to David in the covenant. And then he goes on, he quotes Psalm 1610. He says, therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. That's Psalm 1610. Now, now what is he saying? David Paul goes on to say, saw corruption. He served the purposes of God. He fell asleep. He was laid with his father. He saw corruption. But, but the Messiah, the one that's reception, the, the, the one who receives the covenant promises of David, he does not see corruption. Then he, then he, draws, then, then he draws a conclusion we'll talk about here in, in just a second. But notice where we are as we come here to the end of of Paul quoting quoting David and Isaiah. The resurrection is showing us that Jesus is a fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament. He's a display of God's power to bring salvation. Now, how, how is this good news for us? The same power that brings about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is the same power that's available to you and I to fulfill the promises that God made to, to bring about complete salvation. I was uh, looking at an advertisement for a solar power company. They were talking about how powerful the sun is. And they said this, they said, every single second, the sun releases an estimated 384.6 yottawatts of energy. A single yottawatt is the equivalent of, of the energy output of an, a hydrogen bomb. A yottawatt is the largest measurement of wattage we have. It's maybe I'm, I'm thinking of like little tiny Yoda and how powerful he is, but <laughs> I'm not what you would call a scientist. But you know. so that's every second. It's, it's releasing that much that much power. And they, another advertisement says the amount of sunlight that hits the earth in one hour. So, 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 so a sun is producing that much every second, like 384 hydrogen bombs every second. But that's not all coming to the earth. What's, how much is, energy is coming to the earth? Well, it's, it's a fraction of that. But in one hour, the amount of sunlight that hits the earth provides more power than the entire world consumes in one year. Okay? That's a lot of power. Now, what's, what's the problem? How do we access it? That's what people are trying to figure out. Okay, we're getting all this power. How do we, how do we access it? How, how do we gain the benefit of this power? 
when it comes to the resurrection, here's where we are in Paul's sermon. God made a promise. It was was an amazing promise of complete salvation, deliverance from sin. Humanity blew it big time. And yet God displayed his his power in raising Jesus from the dead. And and now that's an incredible power, the power to bring life to death. It's the power that you and I need to be delivered from sin. Here's the question. How do we access that? This morning, it's not just trace amounts of sin I struggle with. You're sitting there saying, okay, I'm struggling with with all sorts of of, of sin in my life and the the power of sin. I need to be saved. I need to be saved from the power of sin in my life. I need to be saved from its grasp. I need to be saved from the consequences. I feel shame over my sin. I know that my sin separates me from God relationally. I know that it's separating me from other people. I, I, I need complete deliverance. How do I access that power? If, if, that, if that's the power that God has, how do, I, how do I gain access to that? And here's what I want us to see next then. Let's look at what Paul says in terms of application, the, the offer of complete forgiveness of sins in Christ. Two things I want you to see about the offer here. We'll touch more on this next week. He says, the first thing I want you to notice is, is the offers for the, for the fullness of forgiveness. Look at, look at verse 38. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, this one that God raised from the dead, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's, that's the message we're trying to get you to believe and respond to. And by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from what? How much? Everything. There's complete and total deliverance. Freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. That's, that's the offer. The offer is for total, complete fullness of forgiveness. God is a forgiving God, and the things he's promised to do in the Old Testament are now coming to fruition. Isaiah thirty three twenty four. The inhabitant no more will say, I am sick, and the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Jeremiah 31, 34, speaking of this new covenant, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Daniel chapter 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. We have rebelled against him. Micah chapter 7, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to to Jacob and steadfast love, Hesed to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the day of old. Brothers and sisters, what God has promised to our forefathers in the faith, we are now receiving complete and total forgiveness of sins, sins that are cast into the sea as God remembers them no more. And it's received one way only, through belief in Jesus. A simple offer of forgiveness that we access through our union with Jesus Christ through faith. If you wrong me and you ask me to forgive you, there's a pretty close to 100% chance I'm going to say yes. There's also a pretty close chance to 100% it's not going to be perfect forgiveness, right? 
I'm going to struggle with it. When I forgive you, I'm still, despite my best efforts, aware of your sin against me. It's hard for me not to define you on the basis, let's say, especially if you've done something profoundly wrong to me. At least initially, I, I do tend to forget things pretty quickly, so you know, that's good news for everybody, right? But, um, but, it, but it's hard for me not to, to think about it at first, right? You, you lied to me, and, and I, th- I might think about that the next couple times you, you come to me. Or you, you talked about me behind my back. You, you cheated at Monopoly, and you know how bo- much that bothers me, right? But the hardest thing for me, whenever someone, maybe especially close to me, is wrong, the hardest thing for me is, is what? I, I want to say the words, I forgive you. I, I, I desire that in my heart. But I also, I want you to have to pay a little bit for it, right? And, and I'm sure the same is true for you. I, I want you to have to bear some cost of it, to, to feel the, the pain of what you've done, to, to, to bear the, the penalty and to exact something, you know, just, just to help you learn, right? That's not how God forgives. Paul uses the word forgiveness. It's it's really the word justification. Everyone who believes is justified from everything that the law of Moses could not justify you from. As God looks at you, he no longer, this this is an amazing thing to see. As God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he no longer sees the sin that you've done in terms of his relationship with you. He looks on you and sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That is total and complete forgiveness. You could not, as much as you and I are, on our own, apart from God's work, are enslaved to sin. So God, in manifesting the flesh in Jesus Christ, is free from sin. He is absolute, total perfection in every way possible. And as we look at Jesus, and as we are united with him through faith, placing our trust in him, we receive complete and total forgiveness. The offer is for forgiveness of sins. And then the second thing that I want us to see is there's, there's a warning the warning is a fullness of judgment. And he quotes Habakkuk here, and I'm not going to, we'll talk about this more next week, but the, 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 the warning is, look, if you, if you don't receive this offer, certain judgment awaits. Certain judgment awaits. Well, again, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. The same power that raised up Jesus delivers us completely from all our sin. We're in bondage to sin, but the power of God that worked about the resurrection is, is offered to you and I through our faith in his son, Jesus. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to do so now, recognizing the incredible danger that we are all in due to sin, the incredible offer that's ours in Jesus Christ. Let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray in your kindness that you would deliver us from sin and its, its bondage. We pray, even those of us who are believers who've received a new heart through our faith in your son Jesus, we ask that you would be kind to us and that you would allow us to, to continue by your sanctifying work to flee from sin that so easily entangles us, to, 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 to see the joy that is ours in Christ. Father, we pray again for, for those in our community, our church community, who, who need to receive the joy of, of salvation, that they would do so. We experience the complete freedom from shame, the complete freedom from relational distance to you and receive the forgiveness you offer us in your son, Jesus. We pray this in him. Amen.